taker of children. It'll make you see things. Feel things that aren't real. That's what the trailer sounds like for Hollywood's newest horror film, The Devil's Offering. And it's a very Jewish horror film about an ancient female demon who terrorizes a Hasidic community in New York. The film came out around the world in January, and you can rent it or buy it from digital platforms like Amazon Prime and Apple TV. The Canadian connection is very strong because of the former Torontonian who wrote the story and produced the film. Hanina Hoffman grew up in Toronto. His father, Rabbi Baruch, was clergy at a Dath Israel congregation. And the younger Hoffman went to modern Orthodox day schools, and then Yeshiva, and then Chad High School. But his pursuit of Jewish mysticism took him to the alleys of Jerusalem, and then back to Toronto and a job reciting psalms over the dead and the morgue of Benjamin's funeral home. All of it came in handy when a big-budget Hollywood movie house came calling. So we layered in these things into the movie, um, I would say to a fault. This is a film that pretends to be a commercial film, but it's not. There's like 30 midrashim all carefully woven in. I'm Ellen Besner, and this is what Jewish Canada sounds like for Thursday, February the 2nd, 2023. Welcome to the CJN Daily, a podcast of the Canadian Jewish News, sponsored by Metropia. Okay, just for full disclosure, you should know I hate horror movies. They scare me for years after I watch them. I mean, I'm still terrified of the clown in Stephen King's movie, It. But for research purposes, I did watch The Devil's Offering. And yes, I got scared. There were some famous actors in it, including a star from The Game of Thrones. But for me, the film is interesting because of the questions that it raises, the whole backstory to the deeper Jewish meanings that its Canadian creator, 36-year-old Hanina Hoffman, intentionally wove throughout the film, including some lies about the protocols of the elders of Zion and even the binding of Isaac. Hoffman joins me now from Beverly Hills to explain why he hopes the film will show Hasidic Jews in a more positive light. So you were how old? You were 18 years old, sitting with corpses, dead bodies, doing festival emis. Exactly. It's not like a normal 18-year-old that goes and works at McDonald's, right? So what did you get out of it? At an 18-year-old, I'd be petrified. I would be so scared. Oh, I wasn't petrified at all. No, I, I felt uh, I felt emotionally moved by the spirits that were in the room. I felt uh, an incredible sense of life and only life. You know, we have, the, we have our neuro-linguistic programming due to English sometimes messes, I think, sometimes messes up, I think, our intuitive understanding of things. And so we use words like afterlife to suggest like, okay, you have life and then after that, no life. But no, there's there's life and only life, just various forms of life with various forms of consciousness. So for me, I never saw it as I'm around the dead. It was a feeling of I'm in a space where you're kind of at the nexus point between two realms, you know, the time-space material realm and this other realm where souls continue. And that all sounds like, you know, maybe a little hippy-dippy or a little naive, but when you develop sensitivities, you can feel things. And that's what happened for me. And and there's nothing more empowering, by the way, in life than when you look, the core fear in every human being is they're going to die. They're fragile. They're here for a temporary amount of time. And so if you can hit that head on and you can start to feel a genuine conviction that life continues and that death is just a, a passing of one state of mind to another state of mind, I mean, you're really free to enjoy your life. 
to back up what you just said that there's certain stages and there's people go not ghosts but there's other parts life is in that room i felt that when my parent my dad passed away he wasn't gone yet and he didn't go away till the i know this is i've never told anyone this but till the yorkshire candle for the first week went out he was still in there he was in that candle and then when the candle died that was more devastating than i thought it would be so this is my personal experience with it he was still here and he was hovering around and i felt him but who knows whether you felt did you talk to them what do you say when you're a shomer yeah. yeah i mean really it was a triangulated relationship it's like me it's god and whoever had passed away and so it was never me just talking with them it was me being like okay i'm going to read this section into hillam and let me know if you feel if you like this if you don't like it i'll read something else so it was yeah i know it was uh it was a powerful experience well, in the film, we we'll, might as well talk about the film because this is why we we reached out to you. I saw that scene where when the body comes in, of, I'm not going to give spoilers, but the first person that the the stars have to have to do tahara and whatever they have to do, he, they make a prayer first and talk to the body and and they talk to it. Is that channeled directly from your own experience? In an unconscious way, yes. I don't think that when I was writing it, that was what my intention was my intention was i wanted to showcase the ethos and the sentiment of what a chassid who has a deep connection to god would do in that situation i was what what drew me to this project is i i was very very concerned with the underrepresentation and misrepresentation of chassidim in the media i have no problem with shows like Unorthodox, trying to tell one woman's personal story, her personal hell that she had to escape from because of a really crappy community or very crappy marriage, whatever it is that she then had to liberate herself from. But the problem is you need to put a disclaimer on something like a show like Unorthodox because the average person has no idea that they're different sects of Hasidim, that this is a minority of some super crazies. There's there is no uh, ability for the average person to differentiate. So the general perception of Hasidim is that they're just a bunch of chauvinistic, backwards, you, you know, scoundrels. And so I said, that's ridiculous. Some of the greatest people I ever met were Hasidim. And so I wanted to do a film that could showcase my love for these people without whitewashing them. I wanted to depict them honestly. I wanted to show their wit and their charm, and their chutzpah, and their sensitivities. And so packaging that in a commercial horror film allowed me a larger platform to really try to resensitize and re-educate the audience around what Hasidim are also like. And so far, it's been very successful. I get a lot of letters. And stories thrive off of uh, dysfunction. And so, of course, dysfunctional Hasidim will breed better narrative. And so the trick in a story that, that like the film I, that we just put out, the trick is how do you how do you enjoy the dysfunction, but at the same time have certain boundaries that you play in? Because when you're doing horror, the impulse is let's make it as horrific as possible. And there were a lot of creative choices in the constructing of this script where I went, yes, that's a that's such a scarier scene, but I won't do it. I won't do it because. I can't put out certain imagery into the world yet. For example, uh, uh, let's say a chassid who's turned demonic and is chasing someone around the house. I can't have people 
looking at Hasidim going, oh my God, scary demon, rabbi guy. It's too soon. My hope is that as more Jewish horror and Jewish films come out, eventually they just become stories and they're no longer political. And then I think we can expand the playground within which we can play with these characters and push the genre. But because this is fairly fresh ground, uh, I, I, I felt a very big obligation and responsibility to try to rebalance the Hasidic narrative. I think Stissel probably was the most the most um, favorable one because you get to see the real people just like me and you with problems like everyone else, right? That was kind of a more sympathetic portrayal, right? A bit. I love Stissel. I mean, really the design principle was, can we do Stissel the horror movie? Is there a way to like kind of combine the two? And I didn't want it, by the way, I could have gladly not made a horror film, but my my partner, who's the co-president of Millennium, they've done over a billion dollars worth of mega movie franchises. So when at my Shabbos table, we always would explore Jewish mystical ideas and our love of genre. And then one day he called me up and he said, uh, let's do a Jewish horror movie. And I said, um, no. <laughs> and he said, dude, I promise if you write it, um, I'll get it made. And I said, no, <laughs> I still don't want to do it. And then he said, well, think about it. And I did think about it. And then when I found a point of entry, I went, you know what? What the heck? Let's try it. And it's a big it's a big responsibility because this film is out in over 40 countries around the world. That is and and any Jew who grew up traditionally, then you have a sensitivity to anti-Semitism. So it's it's a tricky one. My hope is that a little love for the for the Jews can uh, can emerge from a film like this because they are very lovable characters, these Hasidim. You didn't have a rabbinical consultant or like a fact checker or ritual director, as you said, did you? Yeah, of course. I had one guy who was a mohel, right? So he did circumcisions. He also taught karate, of all things, but he also was a, a legitimate Orthodox Kabbalist and a teacher. And uh, the opening spell in the movie, no spoilers, but we have a, without going into any details, we do have a Kabbalist do a spell to try to deal with this demon problem in the opening of the film. Uh, that spell's real. That spell, our consultant actually found for us. It's so weird to call him a consultant. A rabbi. A rabbi found for us. That's a real spell. But I changed two words on the spell on the off chance there's any legitimacy to this because I didn't feel like opening a gate to hell in Sofia, Bulgaria, where we shot the film. So there was a sensitivity there. But we tried to push it as much as possible. As the film develops, it's very clear that the cause of all the problems in the story is because of one Kabbalist's inability to let go of his wife and using Kabbalah and esoteric um, wisdom in a way that he went too deep and unwittingly unleashed something. Which, by the way, is the most Jewish thing ever. If you study Jewish mysticism, all it does is pretty much tell you don't practice Jewish mysticism. Like the takeaway of any Jewish mysticism is... Warning, don't try this at home. Yeah, don't do it. Don't try it. You're not on the level. But if you but if you want to explore the metaphors of how the world runs and how to, be, how to become more in the image of God, then Kabbalah is totally useful. But Kabbalah Masi, which is practical Kabbalah, it's totally against. But when you're doing a horror film, you need someone to do something to unleash a horrible situation. Another thing that was critical to developing this and, and fleshing this into a, a, a larger film was this idea 
of um, the sacrificing of Isaac or the binding of Isaac. There's only one horror story in the Bible, in my opinion, and that is, wait, so God's like, hey, Avraham, FYI, tomorrow, I don't know if you got the memo, but I need you to kill your son. God out, you know, and then Abraham takes his son to kill him because God just asked him to. That's horrific. So I wanted to do a modern day telling of the binding of Isaac. I wanted to be like, is there a way where by the end of this film it makes sense why someone would have to sacrifice themselves or another person in a way that is rational? And of course, that's a fun challenge to take on. The reason why I thought The Binding of Isaac was also an important story to explore and using this film to do it as a modern day retelling of The Binding of Isaac is because as I was doing my research to develop this script, like I said, it's inescapably political when you're doing something Jewish that's also mainstream and you're fusing the two. And so I had to look into the, the elders of Zion or the protocols of Zion, you know, the, you know, the, um, the anti-Semitic nonsense that has haunted the Jews ever since his publishing. Wait, so uh, you've literally a got a copy and you read it? I read parts of it, but where I went, I want to know what the modern person who goes on BitChute or one of these other crazy conspiracy websites full of anti-Semitic trash, that was where the bulk of my research was because that is topical, it's modern. I discovered, holy crap, they're used, they, this conspiracy theory about Jews doing these rituals with the blood of non-Jews or, or of children and make matzah and other crazy pagan accusations. The, the source of this accusation is they said, hey, you think we're crazy, but just look in the Bible. The Jews already have a God that told Abraham to sacrifice his son. They're totally in a killing children for God when it suits their God. And so I went, oh, that's the source. OK, let's do a movie centered totally around that misconception. And so it was these like progressive kind of stages of research and intention that ultimately fused together to create what we ultimately put out. The average person that goes to see like Megan, the new horror film or what have you, they're not going to be looking for these deep layers, only specific like horror fans and 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 philosophy. They could teach a course on this. Honestly, they could use this as um, a Jewish studies course from now on. I imagine well, we have it will be. You know, we've had professors start to like dismantle it, dissect it, complain and praise it all at once. But I do know that if you put enough subliminal effort into the frame and you pack something with a lot of subtext, visual subtext and other forms of subtext, um, what happens is, is there's often a niche, niche audience that goes, I kind of want to see that again. And they start connecting the dots. And that becomes its own thing. And that's what Kubrick did. All his films... He told two movies, the movie you saw and the movie he hid. And uh, we had the chutzpah to try and do the same, because if you're doing a Jewish movie, you should think like a Jew and really put in, you know, the levels of pardes, shot, remish, drash, shod. In other words, all these layers of meaning. And most of it will be lost to the audience. And that's fine. It's totally fine. I was not expecting this conversation today. Honestly, I thought it was going to be another press junket, honestly, you know, where the, that they're paid to be here and they're very superficial. But this was probably one of the most deep interviews I've ever done. So I just want to tell you that. Did your parents see it? And what do they think? They have not seen it yet. My mother saw an early cut. It's going full theatrical in Israel in March. And so because I'm such a, um, a nut, I said, I will not send you a digital screener so you can put it on your little laptop or on your phone, watch it, and then send me platitudes because I'm your son and everything I do is amazing because you're overly loving, which they are. 
I'm like, no, you're going to go into an audience with a bunch of chutzpahdik Israelis in Israel, see it in the theater, and hopefully I can scare my parents, uh, you know, and hopefully they can be entertained. And that's what Jewish Canada sounds like for this episode of the CJN Daily, sponsored by Metropia. Integrity, community, quality, and customer care. Today's listener shout-out goes to longtime listener Lynn Herzeg in Montreal and to Rufus, who turned 18. Rufus is her dog. And we'll end the episode with something that's really scary. It's just eight and a half weeks until Passover. If you like what we do here, why not share the show with a friend? We cover stories like these with a Canadian Jewish twist, and you won't find them anywhere else. So show them how to listen and how to subscribe. I'm at ebesner at the cjn.ca. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. (laughs) 